We're going to uh, be looking tonight at molecular machines, the concept of irreducible complexity, advanced complexity, and we're going to begin, uh, take a first look at digital information following next week with digital information and, and perhaps, if time permits, the uh, universal language. I would like to tell you about the protein molecule. Protein molecules are a class of chemicals in your body that do everything that run your system, your body, and other living systems. They make you walk and talk and think. They run your immune system. They run your brain. They run your heart. They, are your, uh, they digest your food for you. Now, protein molecules are the subject of biology 101 courses everywhere. I am not going to tell you about that basic subject, but rather instead what I'm going to tell you about is two fairly new and very important developments focused on protein physics and protein engineering and the exciting implications they have for potential new technologies. First thing I want to do is just introduce you or remind you, for those of you who've seen this before, what a protein molecule is. Uh, they are very small. You have billions of trillions of them inside your body. And a metaphor you, may say, you, you could say, if you could scale up a protein molecule to the size of a penny, the number of protein molecules you have in your body is the same as the number of pennies that would fill the Pacific Ocean. You have lots of them. They're extremely small. Now, on the other hand, having said this, let me say also that protein molecules among molecules are very large and big and complicated, and this is a picture of one. This is a picture of a relatively small protein molecule. Uh, the beads that you see on this diagram are atoms, and the little lines connecting them are chemical bonds. And a key feature of protein molecules is that they are long and stringy, and they are made of, I've colored here, these are false colors, chemicals don't have color. Uh, I've colored these beads along the chain. They look like beads on a necklace. The beads themselves are the components of protein molecules, and they're called amino acids. Amino acids are very simple chemicals. You can go down to your drugstore, you buy powders. They're a couple of bucks. They go by names like valine and isoleucine and glutamine and phenylalanine and things like that. Those are the component pieces. This is a picture of uh, showing you the string. Sorry, ah, there we go. This is just a schematic representation that strips out some of the amino acids so that you can see two things. One is the basic long stringy character of a protein molecule, and secondly, what an amino acid looks like along the chain. I've stripped out all the rest. Now, the first major development I want to tell you about is a thing called the protein folding problem and the protein folding code. This is one of the has been considered one of the uh, grandest challenge problems for the last 50 years in biochemistry. The protein molecule has a code, and the question is how to break it. And what I want to report to you is that a community of biophysicists has come now very close, has solved many of these problems, both high-level problems and the detailed problems. And we can now compute the structures of proteins in computers. Here's what the code is. Think about this necklace, if you like, 
as being made up of pearls that have 20 different colors. The 20 different colors represent the 20 different types of amino acids, so they represent the different chemical types. I'm just using a metaphor here. Suppose you could string those pearls together in any order you wanted to, red, green, blue, blue, pink, and so forth. It turns out the way you string those pearls together, the amino acid sequence, determines how this long stringy molecule crunches down into a crumpled version, which we call the shape. Now, one string of colors, blue, blue, pink, will crunch into one shape, and that shape may become a part of your muscle. A different string of pearl colors will crunch down into a different shape, and that will perform, that will be, let's say, an antibody protein in your body. So this, the code is how the string of amino acids encodes what the shape is. That's the protein folding problem. I want to describe uh, some advances in that area first. And then the second part of the problem is, once you know the shape of the protein, how can you tell what it does and how it works? These are the two key components for understanding uh, the functioning in your body of protein molecules. Now I'm going to show you the folding problem and what we're looking to try to do. This is a protein that's all stretched out. You see four red col uh, colored amino acids here. And the basic idea is this is a chain that needs to find its shape. And we know that these four red beads, we know after the fact that these four red beads need to find each other. It's very much like you walking through a crowd of people trying to find your close friends. It's a fairly random process, but sooner or later you can sometimes do it. Those red beads need to find each other. This is called folding. And if you look at the blue strands, what they need to do is they need to line up like train tracks. And what the gold part needs to do is coil up like a helix. And this is showing you the folding process. And what, one thing you'll notice is that these pieces form and they do it systematically. The other thing you will notice, so this is the final shape, and this is the shape that your protein has when it's in your body. This is the shape it needs to function. But the other thing you notice about this movie is it's very jiggly. Why is that? It's because protein molecules are so small that they get banged around by water molecules. Think about riding a bicycle in a windstorm. You're trying to get somewhere, but you keep getting blown around, and that's how protein molecules have to function too. They have to deal with these little microscopic windstorms. So this is the shape of a folded protein. The folding problem and the folding code is the business about if I knew what the sequence of amino acids is, how do I figure out what the structure is? Now this next picture is showing you a more realistic, bigger protein molecule. Most pro protein molecules are bigger than the one I just showed you. They often look something like this. And now I want to switch from talking about the folding problem per se to talking about mechanisms and functions. And the case I want to make for you is that proteins are machines. You have 20,000 odd different types of machines in your body and then other kinds of living organisms have other kinds of protein machines. There's tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of different machines. And the first case I want to make for you is that these are real machines. That's not a metaphor. They use energy, they spin around, they pump, they act to cause force and motion. This is just a side view, a static view, of a thing that is a protein motor. 
That light gray at the top is your cell membrane. Above it is the outside of the cell. Below it is the inside of the cell. And this is just showing you a static picture. And now what I'm going to do is to show you a dynamical movie of how this machine actually works. This is a picture of that. This is a movie of that machine. And what you can see is it pumps acids. Those are the little cubicle things in and out of your cell so that it keeps the pH balance in your cell. And the things down at the bottom, little cards going in and out, that's where the energy comes and goes. And what you can see is a ribbon diagram. So that shows you the nature of the protein molecule. And a critical point that I want to make about that movie and about how proteins function in general is they function by shape and by shape changes. And you could see that protein molecule going back and forth as different chemicals come and go. Shape is the critical thing here. Remember this diagram from last week. So those of you, so you guys at least, uh, recognize uh, that. Some of you have had them apart, right? And so you know that in this machine, there are hundreds of parts. If you count all the cotter keys and, and uh, keyways and gears and things like that that hold it all together. And the point I would make here with this, and this is what I actually said last week, Every piece in that is a protein. It's a different shape, and because it's a different shape, it has a function. But as we're going to see, uh, going a little bit further, your body, as he just said, is full of machines that are actually moving and working all the time, just like this. Now, the question I'll ask does anyone doubt that this machine was designed? We would never doubt that this machine was designed for a purpose by a designer. As we see how the machines work in our body, can we not ask the same question? Is it possible that these machines came to be all by themselves and began to function the way they do all by themselves? tiny molecular machines, and they are doing this inside your body right now. To understand why, we have to zoom out. Every day in an adult human body, 50 to 70 billion of your cells die. Either they're stressed or damaged or just old. But this is normal. In fact, it's called programmed cell death. But to make up for all these lost cells, right now, billions of your cells are dividing essentially creating new cells. And that process of cell division, also called mitosis, well, it requires an army of tiny molecular machines. So let's take a closer look. 
DNA is a good place to start, the double helix molecule we always talk about. This is a scientifically accurate depiction of DNA created by Drew Barry at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. If you unwind the two strands, you can see that each has a sugar phosphate backbone connected to the sequence of nucleic acid base pairs, known by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now, the strands run in opposite directions, which is important when you go to copy DNA. Copying DNA is one of the first steps in cell division. Here, the two strands of DNA are being unwound and separated by the tiny blue molecular machine called helicase. Helicase literally spins as fast as a jet engine. The strand of DNA on the right has its complementary strand assembled continuously, but the other strand is more complicated because it runs in the opposite direction. So it must be looped out with its complementary strand assembled in reverse, section by section. At the end of this process, you have two identical DNA molecules, each one a few centimeters long, but just a couple nanometers wide. So to prevent the DNA from becoming a tangled mess, it is wrapped around proteins called histones, forming a nucleosome. These nucleosomes are bundled together into a fiber known as chromatin, which is further looped and coiled to form a chromosome, one of the largest molecular structures in your body. You can actually see chromosomes under a microscope in dividing cells. Only then do they take on their characteristic shape. Otherwise, the DNA is more strewn inside the nucleus. The process of dividing a cell takes around an hour in mammals. So this footage is from a time lapse. You can see how the chromosomes line up on the equator of the cell. Now when everything is right, they are pulled apart into the two new daughter cells, each one containing an identical copy of DNA. Now as simple as this looks, the process is incredibly complicated and requires even more fascinating molecular machines to accomplish it. So let's look at a single chromosome. One chromosome consists of two sausage-shaped chromatids containing the identical copies of DNA made earlier. Each chromatid is attached to microtubule fibers, which guide and help align them in the correct position. The microtubules are connected to the chromatid at the kinetochore, here colored red. The kinetochore consists of hundreds of different proteins working together to achieve multiple objectives. In fact, it's one of the most sophisticated molecular mechanisms inside your body. The kinetochore is central to the successful separation of the chromatids. It creates a dynamic connection between the chromosome and the microtubules. For a reason no one's yet been able to figure out, the microtubules are constantly being built at one end and deconstructed at the other. While the chromosome is still getting ready, the kinetochore sends out a chemical stop signal to the rest of the cell, shown here by the red molecules, basically saying this chromosome is not yet ready to divide. The kinetochore also mechanically senses tension. When the tension is just right and the position and attachment are correct, all the proteins get ready, shown here by turning green. At this point, the stop signal broadcasting system is not switched off. Instead, it is literally carried away from the kinetochore down the microtubules by a dynein motor. That's the walking guy. 
This is really what it looks like. It has long legs so it can avoid obstacles and step over the kinesins, molecular motors that walk in the opposite direction. Personally, I'm astounded by these tiny molecular machines, how they're able to routinely and faithfully execute their functions billions of times over inside your body at this exact instant. I'm also amazed by the scientists who were able to work out how this happens in such detail that we could create realistic depictions of them like you saw in the animations in this video. But perhaps the most amazing thing is just how much is left to be discovered, like figuring out how exactly the chromatids are pulled to opposite ends of the cell. There is still so much that we don't quite know. You know, what I find exciting is that in science fiction, for decades, we've been writing about tiny nanobots that will be injected into our bloodstreams that can heal us. But what this suggests, the existence of these tiny molecular machines inside us, it suggests that there isn't a physical limit that would prevent that. And so I think it's pretty likely that in future, we will be able to develop our own tiny molecular machines that will be able to repair our bodies better than they can repair themselves. So what have we uh, seen so far? The body is incredibly complex. Thousands, thousands of proteins in every cell. And they are doing all the work. You, you, you come home and say, I'm tired. Well, you should be. Your, your body's been working hard all day uh, to keep you going. Did you notice in the uh, first presentation by Ken Dill, uh, you know, he went, he went over it pretty quickly, but did you notice in the presentation he mentioned that the protein has a code? Where did that code come from? He talked about uh, form representing function, and we probably won't get to spend too much time on that, but remember, the, the proteins are all made of the same 20 amino acids. So just 20 make up all of these thousands of different proteins. And how is it that they're different? Well, the sequence of those amino acids causes them to fold into different shapes. And so just as I used the illustration of the motor, because I was a kind of a gear guy uh, for a long time, as they fold, they fold into a functional shape that becomes part of the machinery of your cell. But where did the code come from? Does that sound like something that was an accident or something that was designed? We're going to look uh, now for a few minutes at uh, irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. So the Materialist view is that this all occurred slowly, naturally, mutations that rendered a beneficial effect, and that through natural selection were preserved and passed on. That's the materialist view. But there's a real challenge to that view, and it's in the idea of irreducible complexity. So you all recognize the common everyday mousetrap, right? Five parts there, if I counted them right. One, two, three, four, five. Five parts. Think for a moment of which part you can take away from this mousetrap and still have a mousetrap. 
have a look for a second. Which part could we remove from that and still have something that would function as a mousetrap? Could we remove the spring or the clasp or the killer bar? <laughs> could we remove any part? Well, we couldn't. So you cannot remove one part from this machine and still have a functioning machine. This is the point of irreducible complexity. In Darwin's Black Box in 1996, Behe spotlighted and made famous a number of really interesting discoveries that had been occurring in biochemistry and cell biology over the last two or three decades. And what what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work. The flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail that functions like a propeller, and it moves the bacterium through liquid enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. Bacterial flagellum is a true nanomachine about 40 nanometers in size. It's amazing. I mean, E. coli, salmonella, which are kind of our model systems for the bacterial flagellum, can propel a cell about 20 lengths per second through a very viscous medium like water to these organisms. And you extrapolate that to human um, scale. 20 body lengths per second, 6 foot person, you know, times 20, 120, 120 feet per second. Mark Spitz or... Phelps would be setting uh, records with this type of propulsion. It's hardwired into a, 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 signal a signal transduction circuit that allows the bacterium to sense changes in the sugar gradient in the, uh, in, in the surrounding liquid. This signal transduction system is actually a short-term memory system <clears throat> where the cell is, if it's going in the direction of an attractant, a nutrient that it can use, um, to metabolize, it follows that chemical gradient. If it's a repellent, it will sense that and move in, in the opposite direction. So it's more than just this engine. It's an extraordinary piece of nanotechnology. It's high-tech in low life. And so uh, just by spotlighting these extraordinary pieces of nanotechnology inside cells, and the flagellar motor wasn't the only one, one by any means, Behe, in a sense, opened up uh, a window for people. He opened up the black box of the, of the inner workings of the cell and said, look, this is much more complex than anything that, than, than anything that the early evolutionary biologists had envisioned. Darwin knew nothing of this type of nanotechnology in cells, and at the very least, we've got to come up with an explanation for this. Let's take a look at the uh, at this motor again. So I don't know if the uh, pointer, no, the pointer doesn't do any good. So uh, notice all the different shapes, 
right? You can see all of those, the tail, the, uh, the rotor down below it, the uh, turning things below that, turning in different directions, actually. Every one of those are, are made of proteins. The same 20 amino acids made each one of those pieces, each one of those parts, and yet they are folded into a different shape. And somehow, when those shapes come together, it begins to function as a machine. Where did the code come from to fold it into those shapes and then once those shapes join up to begin to function as a machine? It's really pretty amazing. It appears to me to be designed. And of course, if it's designed, there must be a designer. This was a uh, photo I took off of the... uh, first part of the, the previous video, the cars being assembled. And uh, right here in the middle, kind of the middle of the picture, you see that little short piece of uh, kind of light-colored, almost white uh, material there. That is the nozzle. That is the nozzle where the uh, adhesive came out of the machine to go around the window. You remember seeing the window being sealed on top, and then the machine picked the window up and stuck it down on top of the car. How long do you think the automobile company would be able to sell their cars if that little piece were missing? You didn't get any sealant on that window. It just took the window over and dropped it down on top of the car and delivered it to you, and in the first windstorm, there goes your window. Irreducible complexity. The car doesn't really work. Yes, it'll run, but a car doesn't work if that little piece is missing. Irreducible complexity. And the same thing is going on in our bodies, in our cells, all the time. So uh, every cell is a factory. Many are functional machines. So let's stop there a second. Every cell is a factory. Uh, You may not know this. I didn't remember this from school myself until I began to uh, study this. But all of these pieces, gears in my example, they're all made within the cell. So the ribosome in a cell gets the message, build this. And it calls out for the amino acids which are carried into place and the ribosome builds that part right there in the cell. So every cell in your body is a living factory building nanomachines 24 hours a day. And many of those are machines. The machine parts are made of proteins. And this is amazing It's self-replicating. So what fantastic machine have we ever built that was self-replicating? Well, none so far. You have 37 trillion cells in your body. 37 trillion cells and 50, 70 billion of those are dying and being replaced every day. By what? By those same nanomachines that are dividing the cells and building those proteins 
that form those functional machines every day, 50 to 70 billion. And many, if not most of those, are irreducibly complex. I'm moving along a little fast. This is our uh, closing slide, so you get a few minutes off tonight. These are the parts of your cell, eukaryotic. That's us, uh, complex animals. These are all the parts that are inside every single cell. Where is the ribosome? Lower right? Yeah, there you go, lower right. It doesn't look like a factory to me, <laughs> but that's where all of these proteins are being assembled to form the machines that are running your body. Now the question then is, again, what's the likelihood that all of this could have happened in a cave somewhere, as James Tour said, or in the warm little pond that Darwin thought of? You see, Darwin had no idea what this looked like. Do you remember in the very beginning we talked about Darwin's view of the cell and he called it just like a little lump of jelly, protoplasm he called it. Had no idea what that was. It was just a little ball of goo. He knew it was a cell, but that's all he could see. And it turns out that this is what's actually inside those 37 trillion cells in your body. Self-replicating, machine-forming nanobots, 37 trillion of them, working all the time, being replaced every day as they wear out. It's a pretty amazing machine. Looks designed to me. Thank you.